Principle 6. The Lord lowers himself to reason the case with unconverted sinners and to ask them why they will die. This is a strange disputation, both regarding the controversy and the disputants. 1. The controversy or question proposed is why wicked people will destroy themselves, or why they choose to die rather than turn, and whether they have any sufficient reason for doing so. 2. The disputants are God and man, the most holy God, and wicked, unconverted sinners. 1. Is it not a strange thing that God here seems to suppose that anyone would be willing to die and be condemned, and that this would be the case of all the wicked? The wicked, the unconverted sinners, make up the majority of the world. But you will say that this cannot be, for nature desires its own preservation and joy, and the wicked are more selfish, not less selfish, than others. Therefore, how can anyone be willing to be damned? There are two parts to my answer. One, it is a certain truth that no one can be willing to bear any evil as evil, but only as it has some appearance of good. Much less can anyone be willing to be eternally tormented. Misery, as such, is desired by none. Two, yet despite that, it is most true that God teaches us here that the reason why the wicked die is because they choose to die. This is true in several respects. First, the wicked die because they choose to go the way that leads to hell, even though they are told by God and man where it leads and where it ends, even though God has so often declared in his word that they will be condemned if they continue in that way and they will not be saved unless they turn. There is no peace, saith the Lord unto the wicked, Isaiah 48, verse 22. There is no peace, saith my God, to the wicked, Isaiah 57, verse 21. The way of peace they know not. There is no judgment in their goings. They have made them crooked paths. Whosoever goeth therein shall not know peace. Isaiah 59, verse 8. They have the word and the promise of the living God for it, that if they will not turn, they will not enter into his rest. Yet wicked they are, and wicked they will be, no matter what God and man will say to them. Carnal they are, and carnal they will be. Worldly they are, and worldly they will be, even though God has told them that the love of the world is enmity to God. James 4, verse 4. And that if anyone loves the world, in that measure, the love of the Father is not in him. 1 John 2, verse 15. Consequently, these people are willing to be condemned, though not directly. They're willing to walk in the way to hell and love the specific cause of their torment, although they do not want hell itself and do not love the pain that they must endure. Is not this the truth of your case? You do not want to burn in hell, but you will kindle the fire by your sins and will cast yourselves into it. You do not want to be tormented with demons forever, 
but you will do that which will certainly result in that despite all that can be said against it. It is just as if you would say, I will drink this poison, yet I will not die. I will cast myself headlong from the top of a steeple, yet I will not kill myself. I will thrust this knife into my heart, but I will not take my life. Or, I will put this fire into the thatch of my house, yet I will not burn it. This is how it is with wicked people. They want to be wicked, and they live after the flesh and the world, yet they do not want to be condemned. Do you not know, though, that the means lead to the end? Do you not know that God, by His righteous law, has concluded that you must repent or perish? He who intends to ingest poison may as well plainly say, I intend to kill myself, for it will prove no better in the end, even if he might have loved it for the sweetness of the sugar that was mixed with it, and would not be persuaded that it was poison, but thought he could take it and still be all right. However, it is not his imagination and confidence that will save his life. So if you want to be a drunkard, a fornicator, worldly, or live after the flesh, you may as well say plainly, I intend to be condemned, or so you will be unless you turn. Would you not rebuke the foolishness of a murderer who would say, I will kill, but I will not be hanged, when he knows that if he does the one, the judge, in justice, will assure that the other is done? If he says, I intend to murder, he may as well plainly say, I intend to be hanged. And if you intend to continue in a carnal life, you may as well plainly say, I intend to go to hell. Second, moreover, the wicked will not use those means without which there is no hope of their salvation. He who will not eat may as well plainly say that he will not live, unless he can tell how to live without food. He who will not go on his journey may as well plainly say, that he will not come to the end of his journey. He who falls into the water and will not come out, nor allow anyone else to help him out, may as well plainly say that he wants to drown. Therefore, if you are carnal and ungodly and refuse to be converted, or to use the means by which you could be converted, but think it is more bother than necessary, you may as well plainly say that you choose to be condemned. For if you have found a way to be saved without conversion, you have done that which was never done before. Third, this is not all, but the wicked are unwilling even to partake of salvation itself. Even though they may somewhat desire that which they call by the name of heaven, yet when heaven itself is considered in the true nature of the delight, they do not really desire it, but their hearts are quite against it. Heaven is a state of perfect holiness and of continual love and praise to God, and the wicked have no heart for this. They have no mind for the imperfect love, praise, and holiness that are to be attained here, much less for that which is so much greater. The joys of heaven are of so pure and spiritual a nature that the heart of the wicked cannot truly desire them. By this time you may see on what basis it is that God concludes that the wicked choose their own destruction, 
they will not turn, even though they must turn or die. They would rather risk certain misery than be converted, and then to quiet themselves in their sins, they will make themselves believe that they will nevertheless escape. 2. As this controversy or question is a matter of wonder in that people would be such enemies to themselves as to willingly cast away their souls, so are the disputants. It is a matter of wonder that God would stoop so low as to plead the case with us himself, and also that people would be so strangely blind and obstinate as to need all this in so plain a case, and even to resist all this when their own salvation is at stake. It is no wonder that they will not hear us who are men when they will not hear the Lord himself. As God said when he sent the prophet to the Israelites, The house of Israel will not hearken unto you, for they will not hearken unto me. For all the house of Israel are impudent and hard-hearted. Ezekiel 3 verse 7 It is no wonder that they can argue against a godly minister or a godly neighbor when they will argue against the Lord himself, even against the plainest passages of his word and think that they have reason on their side. When they weary the Lord with their words, they say, Wherein have we wearied him? Malachi 2, verse 17 The priests who despised his name dare to ask, Wherein have we despised thy name? Malachi 1, verse 6 And when they pollute his altar and make the table of the Lord contemptible, they dare to ask, Wherein have we polluted thee? Malachi 1, verse 7. But the Lord says, Woe unto him that striveth with his Maker. Let the potsherds strive with the potsherds of the earth. Shall the clay say to him that fashioneth it, What makest thou? Isaiah 45, verse 9. Question. Why does God reason the case with man? Answer. 1. Man is a creature of reason, and therefore is to be dealt with accordingly and is to be persuaded and overcome by reason. God has provided them with reason that they might use it for Him. One would think that a reasonable creature would not go against the clearest and greatest reason in the world when it is set before Him. 2. People will at least see that God required nothing of them that was unreasonable, but both in what He commands them as well as what He forbids them he has all the right reason in the world on his side. They have good reason to obey him, but none to disobey him. Therefore, even the condemned will be forced to justify God and confess that it was only reasonable that they should have turned to him. They will be forced to condemn themselves and confess that they had little reason to cast themselves away by neglecting his grace in the day of their visitation. Sinners, look up your best and strongest reasons if you intend to try to succeed in your way. You see now with whom you have to deal. What do you say, unconverted carnal sinner? Do you dare try to dispute with God? Are you able to refute Him? Are you ready to argue with God? God asks you, why will you die? Do you have a sufficient answer? Will you attempt to prove that God is mistaken? and that you are in the right? Oh, what an undertaking that is, 
Either he is mistaken or you are mistaken. He is for your conversion and you are against it. He calls upon you to turn and you will not. He urges you to do it now, even today, while it is called today. Hebrews 3 verse 13 And you delay and think you will have enough time later. He says it must be a total change and that you must be holy and new creatures and born again. And you think it is enough to only do a little, that it is enough to patch up the old man without becoming new. Who is in the right, God or you? God calls you to turn and to live a holy life, and you will not. By your disobedient life, it appears that you will not. If you say that you will, then why don't you? Why have you not done it all this time? Why have you not turned to Him yet? Your will has the command of your lives. We may certainly conclude that you are unwilling to turn when you do not turn. Why will you not? Can you give any reason for it that is worthy to be called a reason? I am merely a worm, your fellow creature, of a shallow capacity. Yet I dare challenge the wisest of you all to reason the case with me while I plead my Maker's cause. And I do not need to be discouraged when I know that I plead the cause that God pleads, and that I contend for Him who will have the best at last. If I only had these two general reasons against you, I am sure that you have no good reason on your side. First, I am sure that any excuse or argument that is against the God of truth and reason is not a good argument. It cannot be light that is contrary to the sun. There is no knowledge in any creature except what it had from God, and therefore no one can be wiser than God. It would be fatal presumption for the highest angel to try to compare himself with his Creator. What is it, then, for a lump of earth, an ignorant fool who does not know himself or his own soul, who knows only a little of the things that he sees, and who is more ignorant than many of his neighbors, to set himself against the wisdom of the Lord? It is one of the fullest discoveries of the horrible wickedness of carnal men and the insanity of those who willingly sin that such an absurd, blind creature dare contradict his Maker and call in question the Word of God. Yes, it is terrible that those people who are so ignorant that they cannot give us a reasonable answer concerning the very first principles of Christianity are yet so wise in their own conceit, Proverbs 26, verse 12, that they dare question the plainest truths of God and even contradict them and criticize them when they can hardly speak sense and will believe them no further than what agrees with their foolish wisdom. Second, just as I know that God is in the right, so I know that the case is so obvious and clear that the sinner pleads against that no one can have reason for it. Is it possible that anyone can have any reason to break his Maker's laws, any reason to dishonor the Lord of glory, and any reason to abuse the Lord who bought him? Is it possible that anyone can have any good reason to condemn his own immortal soul? Observe the Lord's question. Turn ye, 
return ye, for why will ye die? Is eternal death something to be desired? Are you in love with hell? What reason do you have to knowingly perish? If you think you have some reason to sin, should you not remember that death is the wages of sin? Romans 6 verse 23 And then consider whether you have any reason to destroy yourselves, body and soul, forever. You should not only ask whether you love the adder, but also whether you love the sting. It is a strange thing for someone to cast away his everlasting happiness and to sin against God when no good reason can be given for it. But the more anyone argues for it, the more foolish he shows himself to be. If you were offered a kingdom for every sin that you commit, it would not be good sense, but insanity to accept it. If by every sin you could obtain the highest thing on earth that the flesh desires, it would be of no considerable value to persuade you in reason to commit it. If it were to please your greatest or dearest friends to obey the greatest ruler on earth, to save your life, or to escape the greatest earthly misery, all these are of no consideration to entice someone with good sense and reason to commit even one sin. If your right hand or right eye would hinder your salvation, it would be most beneficial for you to cast it away, rather than to go to hell to save it. For there is no saving a part when you lose the whole. Matthew 5, verse 29 through 30. So exceedingly great are the matters of eternity that nothing in this world deserves even once to be named in comparison with them. Nor can any earthly thing, even if it were life or crowns or kingdoms, be a reasonable excuse for neglecting matters of such high and everlasting consequence. A person can have no reason to resist his ultimate end. Heaven is such a thing that if you lose it, nothing can supply the lack or make up the loss. And hell is such a thing that if you suffer in hell, nothing can remove your misery or give you ease and comfort. Therefore, nothing can be a valuable consideration to excuse you for neglecting your own salvation. For our Savior says, What shall it profit a man if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Mark 8 verse 36 Oh, if you only knew what we are now speaking to you of, you would have other thoughts of these things. If the devil could come to the saints in heaven who live in the sight and love of God and would offer them worldly pleasures, pleasant company, or sports to entice them away from God and glory, how do you think they would entertain the idea? If he would offer them to be kings on the earth, do you think this would entice them down from heaven? Oh, with what hatred and holy scorn they would reject the idea. And why would you not do so if you had heaven open to your faith and simply had faith to see it? There is not a soul in hell who does not now know that it was a foolish exchange to let go of heaven for fleshly pleasure, and that it is not a little entertainment, pleasure, worldly riches, honor, or the good will or word of men that will quench the fires of hell or benefit him who loses his soul. 
Oh, if you had heard what I believe, if you had seen what I believe, and that on the certainty of the word of God, you would say there can be no reason to justify anyone destroying his soul. You would not dare sleep quietly another night unless you had resolved to turn and live. If you see someone put his hand in the fire until it burns off, you would marvel at it. But this is something that someone may have reason for, as Bishop Cranmer had when he burned off his hand for endorsing Roman Catholicism. If you see someone cut off a leg or an arm, it is a sad sight. But there may be a good reason for this also, as some people have had this done to save their lives. It is difficult to see someone give his body to be tormented with chains and torture, or to be burned to ashes, and refuse deliverance when it is offered. But a person may have good reason for this, as you may see in Hebrews 11, verses 33-36, and as many hundreds of martyrs have recently done. However, for someone to forsake the Lord who made him, and to run into the fire of hell when he is told of it, and urge to turn that he may be saved, this is something that can have no reason in the world to justify or excuse it. Heaven will make up for the loss of anything that we can lose to obtain it, or for any labor that we expend for it. But nothing can pay for the loss of heaven. I ask you now to let God's word come nearer to your heart. Just as you are convinced that you have no reason to destroy yourselves, so tell me what reason you have to refuse to turn and live to God. What reason does the most excessive worldly person, drunkard, or ignorant careless sinner have why he should not be as holy as anyone you know and be as careful for his soul as anyone else? Will not hell be as intolerable to you as to others? Should not your own souls be as dear to you as theirs is to them? Does not God have just as much authority over you? Why, then, will you not become a sanctified person as well as they? When God brings the matter down to the very principles of nature and shows that you have no more reason to be ungodly than you have to destroy your own souls, if you will still not understand and turn, it seems that you are in a desperate situation. Either you have good reason for what you do, or you do not. If not, will you go against reason itself? Will you do that for which you have no justification? If you think you have a good reason, produce it and make the best of your matter. Reason the case a little with me, your fellow creature. This is far easier to do than to reason the case with God. Tell me here, before the Lord, as if you were to die this hour, why you will not resolve to turn this day before you move from where you are? What reason do you have to deny or to delay? Do you have any reasons that satisfy your own conscience for it, or any that you dare acknowledge and plead at the judgment seat of God? If you have, let us hear them. Bring them forth and make them good, but what poor stuff, what nonsense, instead of reasons we daily hear from the ungodly. If it were not for the worth of their immortal souls, I would be ashamed to name them. Objection number one. If no one will be saved except those whom you speak of who are converted and sanctified, heaven will be very empty. Then may God help a great many. 
Answer. It seems that you think that God does not know, or else that he is not to be believed. Do not base everything upon the little that you know. God has thousands and millions of his sanctified ones, but they are few in comparison of the world, as Christ himself has told us. Enter ye in at the straight gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leadeth to destruction, and many there be which go in thereat. Because straight is the gate, and narrow is the way which leadeth unto life, and few there be that find it. Matthew 7, verses 13 through 14. It better serves you to make that use of this truth that Christ teaches you. And he went through the cities and villages, teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. Then said one unto him, Lord, are there few that be saved? And he said unto them, Strive to enter in at the straight gate. For many, I say unto you, will seek to enter in, and shall not be able. Luke 13, verses 22 through 24. Christ said to his sanctified ones, Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Luke 12, verse 32. Objection number two. I am sure that if people like me go to hell, I will have plenty of company. Answer. Will that be any ease or comfort to you? Do you think you would not have enough company in heaven? Will you be destroyed because you want company? Will you not believe that God will execute his threatenings because there are so many who are guilty? These are all unreasonable thoughts. Objection 3. All people are sinners, even the best of them. Answer. Yes, but not all are unconverted sinners. The godly do not live in blatant sins, and their very shortcomings are their grief and burden, which they daily desire, pray, and strive to be rid of. Sin does not have dominion over them. Romans 6 verse 14 Objection 4 I do not see that those who profess to be Christians are any better than other people. They will overreach and oppress and are as covetous as anyone. Answer. No matter how hypocrites are, it is not so with those who are sanctified. God has thousands and tens of thousands who are otherwise, even though the malicious world accuses them of what they can never prove and of that which never entered into their hearts. The wicked commonly accuse them of sins of the heart which no one can see except God because they cannot accuse them of such wickedness in their lives as they are guilty of themselves. Objection 5. But I am not an adulterer, drunkard, or oppressor, so why would you call upon me to be converted? Answer. You were born after the flesh, and have lived after the flesh as well as others. Is it not as great a sin as any of these for someone to have an earthly mind, to love the world above God? and to have an unbelieving, unhumbled heart. Let me tell you more. Many people who avoid disgraceful sins are as firmly glued to the world, are as much slaves to the flesh, are as unfamiliar with God, and are as contrary to heaven in their more respectable course as others are in their more shameful, notorious sins. Objection 6. I do not intend anyone any harm, nor do I do any harm. Why then would God condemn me? Answer. Is it no harm to neglect the Lord who made you, 
and the work for which you came into the world? Is it no harm to prefer the creature before the Creator and to neglect grace that is daily offered to you? It is the depth of your sinfulness to be so unaware of it. The dead do not feel that they are dead. If you were made alive, you would see more that is improper in yourself, and you would be amazed at yourself for downplaying it. Objection 7. I think you want to make people crazy under pretense of converting them. It is enough to afflict the brains of simple people to think so much on matters too high for them. Answer 1. Can you be more unsound than you already are? At least, can there be a more dangerous form of insanity than to neglect your everlasting welfare and to knowingly destroy yourselves? And 2. A person is never truly in his right mind until he's converted. He does not really know God, or sin, or Christ, or the world, or himself, or what his purpose is on earth, so as to set himself about it, until he is converted. The scriptures say that the wicked are unreasonable people, 2 Thessalonians 3, verse 2, and that the wisdom of the world is foolishness with God, 1 Corinthians 3, verse 19. It is said of the prodigal son that when he came to himself, he resolved to return. Luke 15, verse 17. What a strange wisdom this is that people will disobey God and run toward hell out of fear that they will be considered fools. And three, what is there in the work that Christ calls you to that would drive a person out of his senses? Is it loving God, calling upon Him, comfortably thinking of the glory to come, forsaking our sins, loving one another? and delighting ourselves in the service of God. Are these things that would make people lose their minds? Fourth, because you say that these matters are too high for us, you accuse God Himself, since He made this our work, gave us His word, and commanded all who desire to be blessed to meditate on it day and night. Joshua 1 verse 8. Are the matters that we are made for and that we live for too high for us to take part in? This is plainly to dehumanize us and to make beasts of us, as if we were like those who must engage in nothing higher than what belongs to flesh and earth. If heaven is too high for you to think about and consider, it will be too high for you to ever possess. And fifth, if God would sometimes allow any weak-headed person to be distracted by thinking about eternal things, this is because they misunderstand them and run without a guide. Of the two options, I would rather be in this situation than in that of the foolish, unconverted world that views their distraction as their wisdom. Objection 8. I do not think that God cares so much about what people think, speak, or do as to make such a big deal about it. Answer. It seems, then, that you consider the word of God to be false. Then what will you believe? Maybe you think that your own reason might teach you better if you do not believe the Scriptures. You can see that God regards us in such a way that He condescended to make us, and He still preserves us, daily upholds us, and provides for us. Will any wise person make a careful plan for nothing? Will you make or buy a clock or watch for daily use and not care whether it keeps time well or not? 
Certainly, if you do not believe that the specific eye of providence observes your hearts and lives, you cannot believe or expect any specific providence to observe your needs and troubles or to help you. If God had such little care for you as you imagine, you would never have lived until now. A hundred diseases would have endeavored to first destroy you. Yes, the demons would have visited you and would have taken you away alive, just as the large fish devour the smaller, and as ravenous beasts and birds devour others. You cannot think that God made man for no purpose or use, and if he made him for any, it was surely for himself. And you really think that he does not care whether his purpose is accomplished and whether we do the work that we are made for? By this atheistic objection, you suppose that God made and upheld all the world in vain. For what are all other lower creatures for except for man? Why does the earth bear us and nourish us, and the beasts serve us with their labors and lives, and so of the rest? Has God made such a glorious habitation, placed mankind to live in it, and made all of creation for man? And does he look for nothing at his hands, nor care how he thinks? speaks, or lives? This is most unreasonable. Objection 9. It was a better world when people did not make such a big deal about the Christian religion. Answer 1. It has always been the custom to praise the times past. That world that you speak of was inclined to say it was a better world in their forefathers' days, and they said the same about their forefathers. This is just an old custom because we all feel the evil of our own times, but we do not see that which was before us. Second, maybe you speak as you think. Those who are of the world think the world is at its best when it is agreeable to their minds and when they have the most fun and worldly pleasure. I do not doubt that the devil, as well as you, would say that it was a better world then, for then he had more service and less disturbance. The truth, though, is that the world is at its best when God is most loved, regarded, and obeyed. How else will you know when the world is good or bad except by this? Objection 10. There are so many ways and religions that we do not know which one to be part of, and therefore we will remain even as we are. Answer. Because there are many, will you be of that way that you may be sure is wrong? None are further out of the way than worldly, carnal, unconverted sinners. For not only do they err in this or that opinion, as many religious groups do, but the very scope and direction of their lives is wrong. If you were going on a journey that your life depended on, would you stop or turn aside because you came to an intersection or because you saw some travelers go one way and some another way? Some climb over a fence and some miss the way completely. Would you not rather be even more careful to inquire of and follow the right way? If you have some employees who do not know how to do the work properly and some who are unfaithful, would you be pleased with any of the rest who would therefore be lazy and not work well for you because they see their companions work so poorly. Objection 11. I do not see that life goes any better with those who are so godly than with other people. They are as poor and have as much trouble as others. Answer. Yes, and maybe they have even more trouble when God finds it appropriate. 
They do not take earthly prosperity for their wages. They have laid up their treasure and hopes in another world, or else they are not truly Christians. The less they have, the more awaits them, and they are content to wait until then. Objection 12. When you have said all that you can, I am resolved to hope positively, trust in God, do as well as I can, and not make such a fuss about it. Answer 1. Are you doing as well as you can when you will not turn to God, but your heart is against His holy and diligent service? It is truly as well as you want, but that is your affliction. 2. My desire is that you would hope and trust in God. But what is it that you hope for? Is it to be saved if you turn and are sanctified? You have God's promise for this, and therefore I tell you to fully hope for it. However, if you hope to be saved without conversion and a holy life, this is not to hope in God, but it is hoping in Satan or yourselves. For God has given you no such promise. In fact, he has told you the contrary. It is Satan and self-love that made you such promises and raised you to such hopes. Well, if these and similar objections are all you have to say against conversion and a holy life, your all is nothing, and worse than nothing. If these and similar reasons seem sufficient to convince you to forsake God and cast yourselves into hell, we must ask the Lord to deliver you from such reasons, from such blind understandings, and from such senseless, hardened hearts. Do you dare to stand and affirm one of these reasons at the judgment seat of God? It will not help to say then, Lord, I did not turn because I had so much to do in the world, or because I did not like the lives of some who professed to be Christian, or because I saw people of so many beliefs. Oh, how easily the light of that day will confound and shame such reasonings as these. Did you have the world to look after? Then let the world that you served now pay your wages and save you if it can. Did you not have a better world to look after first? Were you not commanded to seek first God's kingdom and righteousness? And were you not promised that other things would be added to you if you did? Matthew 6, verse 33. Were you not told that godliness is profitable unto all things, having the promise of the life that now is, and of that which is to come? 1 Timothy 4, verse 8. Did the sins of professing Christians hinder you? Instead, you should have been even more cautious, and should have learned by their falls to beware. You should have been more careful rather than more careless. It was the Bible and not their lives that was your standard. Did the many opinions of the world hinder you? Your standard, the Holy Scriptures, only taught you one way, and that was the right way. If you had followed that even in as much as was plain and easy, you would never have gone wrong. Will not such answers as these confound and silence you? If these will not, God has others that will. When he asked the man friend, How camest thou in hither not having a wedding garment? Matthew 22, verse 12. That is, what are you doing in my church, among professed Christians, without a holy heart and life? What answer did he make? The text says that he was speechless. He had nothing to say. 
The clearness of the case and the majesty of God will then easily stop the mouths of the most confident of you, even though you will not be silenced by anything we can say to you now, but will defend your cause no matter how bad it is. I already know that there is no excuse or reason that you can give me now that will do you any good at last, when your case must be opened before the Lord and before all the world. I hardly think that your own consciences are very satisfied with your reasons. If they are, then it seems that you have not as much as an intent to repent. But if you do intend to repent, it seems you do not put much confidence in the reasons that you bring against it. What do you say, unconverted sinners? Do you have any good reasons to give why you should not turn, and immediately turn with all your hearts? Will you go to hell in spite of reason itself? Consider what you do in time, for it will soon be too late for you to consider. Can you find any fault with God, or with His work or wages? Is He a bad master? Is the devil whom you serve a better master? Is the flesh a better master? Is there any harm in a holy life? Is a life of worldliness and ungodliness better? Do you think in your consciences that it would do you any harm to be converted and live a holy life? What harm can it do to you? Would it harm you to have the Spirit of Christ within you and to have a cleansed, purified heart? If it is bad to be holy, why does God say, Be ye holy, for I am holy? 1 Peter 1, verses 15-16, Leviticus 20, verse 7. Is it evil to be like God? Is it not said that God made man in his own image? Genesis 1, verse 27. This holiness is his image. Adam lost this, and Christ, by his word and spirit, wants to restore this to you as he does to all whom he will save. How is it that people are baptized into the Holy Spirit as their sanctifier, and yet you will not be sanctified by him, but think it is an affliction for you to be sanctified? Tell me truly, as before the Lord, even though you are reluctant to live a holy life, would you not rather die in the case of those who do so than of others? If you were to die this day, would you not rather die in the case of a converted person than of an unconverted? Would you not rather die as a holy and heavenly person than of a carnal, earthly person? Would you not say as Balaam, Let me die the death of the righteous, and let my last end be like his? Numbers 23, verse 10. Why, then, will you not now be of the mind that you will be part of then? Now or later you must come to this either to be converted or to wish you had been, when it is too late. What is it that you are afraid of losing if you turn? Is it your friends? You will simply change friends. God will be your friend, and Christ and the Spirit will be your friends. Every Christian will be your friend. You will get one friend who will be of more advantage to you than all the friends in the world. The friends you lose? would have only enticed you to hell, but could not have delivered you. However, the friend you get will save you from hell and will bring you to his own eternal rest. Is it your pleasures that you are afraid of losing? You think you will never have a joyous day again once you are converted. How sad 
that you would think it is a greater pleasure to live in foolish sports and entertainment and to please your flesh than to live in the believing thoughts of glory, in the love of God, and in righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit, in which the state of grace consists. Romans 14, verse 17. If it would be a greater pleasure for you to think of your lands and inheritance, if you were Lord of all the country, than it is for a child to play, then why would it not be a greater joy to you to think of the kingdom of heaven being yours than to think of all the riches or pleasures of the world? As it is only simple childishness that makes children so delight in toys that they would not leave them for all your lands, so it is but simple worldliness, carnality, and wickedness that makes you so much delight in your houses and lands, meat and drink, and ease and honor that you would not part with them for the heavenly delights. What will you do for pleasure when these are gone? Do you not think of that? When your pleasures end in horror and go out like a candle, the pleasures of the saints are then the highest. I have had only a little taste of the heavenly pleasures in the foresight of the blessed approaching day and in the present views of the love of God in Christ, but I have also taken too deep of a drink of earthly pleasures, so that you may see that if I am partial it is on your side. Yet I must profess from that little experience that there is no comparison. There is more joy to be had in one day if the sun of life shines clear upon us in the state of holiness than in a whole life of sinful pleasures. A day in his courts is better than a thousand anywhere else. Scripture. I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of God than to dwell in the tents of wickedness. Psalm 84 verse 10. The joy of the wicked is like the laughter of a crazy person who does not know his own misery. This is why Solomon says of such laughter, It is mad, and of mirth, what doeth it? Ecclesiastes 2 verse 2 It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting, for that is the end of all men, and the living will lay it to his heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by the sadness of the countenance the heart is made better. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. It is better to bear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools, for as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of the fool. Ecclesiastes 7 verses 2 through 6 your loudest laughter is only like that of someone who is tickled. He laughs when he has no cause of joy. Judge whether this is a wise man's part. It is only your carnal, unsanctified nature that makes a holy life seem disagreeable to you, and a path of worldliness seem more delightful. If you will only turn, the Holy Spirit will give you another nature and inclination and then it will be more pleasant to you to be rid of your sin than it is now to keep it. You will then say that you did not know what a comfortable life was until now, and that it was never well with you until God and holiness were your delight. Question. Why are people so unreasonable in the matter of salvation? They have sense enough in other matters, 
What makes them so reluctant to be converted that so many words are needed in such a plain case? And even that is usually rejected, as most people will live and die unconverted. Answer. To name them only in a few words, the causes are these. First, people are naturally in love with the earth and flesh. They are born sinners, and their nature has an enmity to God and godliness, just as the nature of a serpent has to a man. When all that we can say goes against the habitual inclination of their natures, it is no wonder that it prevails so little. Second, they are in darkness, and they do not know the very things they hear. They are like a man who was born blind and hears high praise of the light, but what will hearing do unless he sees it? They do not know who God is, or what the power of the cross of Christ is, or who the spirit of holiness is, or what it is to live in love by faith. They do not know the certainty, suitableness, and excellency of the heavenly inheritance. They do not know what conversion and a holy mind and conversation are, even when they hear of them. They are in a fog of ignorance. They are lost and bewildered in sin, like a man who has lost himself in the night and does not know where he is, nor knows how to find his way until the daylight comes again. Third, they are purposely confident that they do not need to be converted, but only need some partial change. They believe that they are on the way to heaven already and are already converted when they are not. It is difficult to show someone that he is not on the way to heaven if he is wrongly convinced that he is on the way to heaven. 4. They have become slaves to their flesh, and they are immersed in the world to make provision for it. Their lusts, passions, and appetites have distracted them and have such power over them that they cannot tell how to deny them or how to care about anything else. The drunkard says, I love a glass of alcohol, and I cannot abstain. The glutton says, I love good food, and I cannot refrain. The fornicator says, I love to have my lust fulfilled, and I cannot refuse it. The gambler loves to have his sports, and he cannot stop. They have even become captivated slaves to their flesh, and their very persistence has become a weakness. What they do not want to do, they say they cannot. The worldly person is so obsessed with earthly things that he has neither heart, mind, nor time for heavenly things. Instead, just as the lean cows ate up the fat ones in Pharaoh's dream, Genesis 41 verse 4, so this lean and barren earth eats up all the thoughts of heaven. Fifth, some people are so carried away by the stream of evil company that they are possessed with harsh thoughts of a godly life by hearing them speak against it, or at least they think they may attempt to do as they see most people do, so they continue in their sinful ways. When one person is cut off and cast into hell, and another is taken away from among them to the same condemnation, it does not alarm them much, because they do not see where they have gone. Poor reprobates, they continue in their ungodliness despite all this but they little know that their companions are now agonizing in torment. In Luke 16, the rich man in hell would have gladly had someone warn his five brothers so that they would not end up in that place of torment. It is likely that he knew their minds and lives, knew that they were hurrying there 
and that they did not think that he was there. They would not have believed anyone who would have told them so. I remember a story that a gentleman told me he saw upon Aiken Bridge over the Severn River. A man was driving a flock of fat lambs, and something met them and hindered their passage. One of the lambs leapt upon the wall of the bridge. Its legs slipped, and it fell into the stream. The rest of the sheep saw that, and one after another they leapt over the bridge into the stream until all or almost all were drowned. Those that were behind did not know what had become of those that had gone before, but thought they might try to follow their companions. However, as soon as they were over the wall and were falling headlong, their situation was altered. This is how it is with unconverted, carnal people. Someone near them dies and drops into hell, and another follows the same way. Yet they will follow them because they do not think about where they are going. Once the hour of death has opened their eyes, though, and they see what is on the other side of the wall, even in another world, what then would they give to be where they once were? Sixth, in addition, they have a scheming, malicious enemy whom they do not see. He plays his game in the dark, and it is his main business to prevent their conversion. Therefore, he desires to keep them where they are by persuading them not to believe the scriptures or not to trouble their minds with these matters, or by persuading them to think negatively of a godly life, the enemy tries to convince them that more is required than is necessary, and that they may be saved without conversion and without all this bother. Satan tries to convince them that God is so merciful that he will not condemn them, or at least that they may continue a little longer, enjoy their pleasure, and follow the world a little longer still and then let it go and repent later. By such deceptive, misleading lies as these, the devil keeps most people in his captivity and leads them to his misery. These and similar hindrances keep many thousands of people unconverted. When God has done so much, and Christ has suffered so much, and godly ministers have said so much for their conversion, when their reasons are silenced, and they are not able to answer the Lord who calls after them, Turn ye, turn ye, for why will ye die? The majority of people still reject God. There is nothing more we can do after all this except to sit down and lament their voluntary misery. I have now shown you the reasonableness of God's commands and the unreasonableness of wicked people's disobedience. If nothing will serve to persuade them, but people will still refuse to turn, we are next to consider who is in fault if they are damned. This brings me to the last principle. 